Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened to before, welcome back. We're fortunate to have very engaged listeners, and we get a lot of emails containing questions. Most of those are probably what you'd expect. Questions about how to improve a meaningful relationship, build a particular inner strength, or overcome some common psychological challenge like anxiety or depression. But one group of questions that's come up more frequently than I expected has to do with familial estrangement. This occurs when one member of a family distances themselves from the others or chooses to not interact with them at all. Research conducted in 2020 suggests that roughly a quarter of Americans are estranged from a relative. It's an extremely challenging and perhaps surprisingly common situation, and the pain related to it only intensifies around the holidays when people are swamped with family-centric messages. Even if this isn't something that you're dealing with personally, the questions that we engage in this territory get to broader questions having to do with balancing our own boundaries with the responsibilities we have toward other people. That's what we're going to be talking about today, how we can think about and navigate estrangement situations, including the balance between finding the distance we need and honoring our commitments to others. To help me do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and maybe particularly important for today's conversation, he's my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. And in addition to being a father, hmm. I'm also a son, a brother, and a relative. So I've looked at and had some sense of estrangements of different yeah. kinds in the broader family system, including people I've known about. And then, mm -hmm. of course, we're, I've worked with a lot of people in this territory. It's extremely poignant. Mm -hmm. And maybe as a bit of a literary way to nod to the one in four of adults statistic in America, thinking about most literature, including Shakespeare, it's about one kind of messed up family or another including estrangements. And so and then we have on television now, one of the top shows, Succession, which is about <laughs> situations where if there weren't money involved, they would yeah. all have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's a great summary of the territory, I think, to kind of start out with. Before we get into it today, I want to give a couple of very quick reminders to people. The first is that if you'd like to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show. Also, if you've been enjoying the show for a while and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And you could maybe even tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. So I think that it would kind of make sense to talk a little bit about what we're going to be talking about here today, and particularly what we mean by estrangement and maybe some of the different kinds of situations that are out there. We're going to be mostly focusing this episode on the dynamic between parents and children. That's because that's the question that we get most frequently. I'm a mother and my child won't interact with me. What can I do? Or I'm a child and I'm trying to get some distance from my parents, but I feel really bad about it in a variety of different ways. What can I do? And then inside of that, so you can see this kind of like two by two matrix to, to steal a Rickism. I'm, I'm creating my two by two so I get my four point list, the whole thing. <laughs> You've got kind of parent distancing from child or child distancing from parent. And then maybe you have this other matrix that we could kind of think about circumstances where there is what one might call clear harm, although defining that gets a little tricky. 
And then situations where that clear harm isn't as obviously present. Does that more or less track for you, Dad? Yeah, it gets, of course, really difficult to talk about nuances of harm. Totally. Ranging from, you know, zero and 100, they're pretty clear. But what about somewhere between one and 99, Mm -hmm. especially in the messy middle? Um, So, yeah, I think that's a very good framework. And even though we're going to focus on parents and kids, I just want to send a nod out to issues between adult siblings, which are startlingly common. And they often come to the surface after one or both parents pass away. Yeah. So just I want to nod in that direction. I also want to nod in the direction of naming the ways in which sort of bystanders within larger family systems can also be very, very affected. If child A, you know, cuts off parent, you know, a parent, a mother, let's say, and yet there are other children from that same mother, that cutoff from child A can really affect adult child B and C and even affect their kids in their relationships with the children of adult child A who cut off contact with the mother. So there are, you know, complications here and complexities that we're going to just not be able to get into, but I want to bow to them and name them along the way. Yeah. And part of what you're alluding to there, I think, is that one of the reasons that we haven't explored this to this point in the podcast is that it's so profoundly individual. And because of the profoundly individual nature of it, it's kind of challenging to give really great, well-applied general advice because every situation is going to be so different. So we can talk about a lot of general principles here, and we could maybe offer ways to think about and feel about this inside of yourself and offer advice for some more common situations. And that's kind of the best we can do, I think. That's right. Maybe also to preview two themes that we're going to be exploring again and again, Mm -hmm. often implicitly, if you think about relationships or these two fundamental dynamics of joining and distancing, stepping in and stepping back, Even over the course of a one-minute interaction, you can observe subtleties of this. And you can also see that some people are more predisposed by temperament toward one or the other. Like I tend to be a warm-hearted introvert. So, you know, I'm very attentive to my boundaries and my own autonomy. And I don't like, you know, influences coming at me that are dominating. Other people, um, let's say, put more of a value on relationship experiences, they're more invested in them, they're more focused on joining. So we're going to be talking about, in effect, how do we balance those dynamics, including when there are differences of desire. Mm -hmm. When, for example, there are people who want to join with you, but you you want to keep your distance from them. Or there are other people who've really distanced from you and it's breaking your heart, but you don't know how to repair there. And maybe repair is impossible. So what you're left with is how can you practice with this inside yourself? Mm. So we're going to be getting into it here. Great setup. We're going to kind of build this episode around two extremely common kinds of situations that people ask us about. And we're going to use those two situations as a way to talk about both general principles and the ways in which you can practice inside of yourself, inside of your own mind with the kind of pains associated with these situations that Rick was just talking about. A lot of this has to do with how to think about and interact with different forms of forgiveness. That's going to be a major theme 
throughout the episode. But I would like to start with uh, one kind of situation. We actually got this question from a listener just a few days ago as we were setting up doing this episode. And I just thought that it was such a beautiful encapsulation of so many of the themes of it that I just wanted to share that question, obviously removing the listener's identifying details. So here's the question. I have a difficult relationship with my mother, and I'm currently taking a break from her. I want to be able to have her in my life, but I'm struggling to let go of the pain associated with past events. How do you forgive someone who doesn't show much remorse? How can I get to a point where her actions don't affect me as much? I feel like each conversation with her takes me back to a bad emotional state from the past, and it takes days for me to recover. Then, critical question, how do you determine if and how you should keep a close family member in your life? Cutting all ties with my mom feels like a lose-lose. Staying also feels like a lose-lose. And you might think for yourself, if you're somebody who either is in or who has ever been in a situation like this, if there are some notes there in that message that might resonate with you. I know that even though I'm, I'm fortunate to not be in that situation with a parent or really a situation with a family member more broadly, nonetheless, it, it's such a emotionally resonant kind of message. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about it, Dad. It's very poignant. It's also poignant to put yourself in the shoes of the parent here, mm. the older parent. I want to toss the ball back to you, Forrest, in the sense that one of the key questions here is, what do we owe other people? Hmm. What are our duties to other people? And in the mix here is, what duties do we have to an aging parent as adults ourselves who didn't really fulfill all their duties to us when we were a kid, ranging from just mediocre to horribly abusive? Right? It really is, it's in there. So I just wondered if you could talk about what you think about or how you think about the obligations, including the obligation, if you will, or just the general principle of compassion, even toward people that have harmed us or we disagree with. Maybe you could kind of walk us through there a little bit. I know you've thought about this. Yeah, so I definitely have some biases here. I think we both probably do to a degree. Mine probably derive from the fact that I'm a 34-year-old person who doesn't have kids, but I do have parents. Yours potentially derived from the fact that you have kids and you can kind of step into the parental role and be like, wow, what would that be like for me yeah. if my kid separated themselves from me in this way? Yeah. So I just want to kind of give a quick shout out to those you know, obvious biases of view here. Yep. That being said, a lot of my views on this are derived from my admittedly imperfect, but at this point, fairly well-read knowledge of developmental psychology and the inherent power dynamic that exists between parents and children. Yeah. One way or the other, a parent makes the choice to have a child. A child does not make the choice to be born. That's such an inherently obvious statement that we can kind of gloss right over it without really thinking about it deeply. But children are the inheritors of their family system, of their family history. They are the inheritors in a lot of different ways. Genetically, they're the inheritors of the parents' genetics. Developmentally, they're the inheritors of the parents' behavior. And that's a really important thing to emphasize here. If you have an alcoholic parent and you are a young kid, you are taking the stick for that parent's choices on a day-in and day-out basis until you are at least 18 years of age. Wow, that's a lot to put on a kid. 
And I think that it is really fair to emphasize the overwhelming impact that parents have on shaping their children that children simply do not have on shaping their parents. It's an imbalanced power dynamic. And alongside that, I think that it's very challenging to find a greater responsibility in this world than one that a parent has to their child, again, particularly a young child. There's sort of a general principle philosophically that the more power we have in a situation, the more responsibility we have to wield it appropriately. This is where you insert your favorite Spider-Man quote of choice if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> so because of all of that, a couple of different conclusions kind of come from it for me. The first is that there is really no more like deeply moral responsibility in this life, in my view, than to be a good enough parent. The language of the good enough parent, it comes from a guy named Winnicott, who did a lot of thinking about developmental psychology and about the impact that parents have on children. The idea being that there is no such thing as a perfect parent, there's just a good enough parent. But I think that we all have an enormous responsibility if we take on parenthood to be a good enough parent. And because of that, a parent cleaning up their act in adulthood, in the child's adulthood, doesn't always make up for what happened back then. In fact, it often doesn't. And I am profoundly sympathetic to people who are in that child position who say, look, I just, you know, I, I can't be in this family system anymore. This family system is unhealthy. It brings unhealthy tendencies out of me. I don't like myself when I'm around it. I've made a thousand pitches to my parents to change in meaningful ways. I've told them to go to therapy. They won't go. I've told them to stop drinking. They won't stop drinking. They sort of make a nod towards changing their behavior. Twice a year, they'll really cry and sob and beg my forgiveness and then just be right back to it the next day. I, I have a very difficult time marshalling a lot of, or maybe to put this in a different way, I have a lot of time having sympathy for the pain that the parent experiences if the child like chooses to cut them off in that moment. And I also think that the child is entirely within their rights to do so. So that's my kind of framing on the way that I think about this territory broadly. And hopefully there was something in there that people found useful because that was kind of a whole spiel. Well, I'm really glad you offered that spiel. And in this podcast, sometimes we find ourselves talking about things that we've talked about before. This is territory that you and I have never talked about before with each other about. And so I'm hearing newly, really, your own view about it. I would say that if I could just kind of offer my own notions. Sure, yeah, please. We're, we're talking about a multifaceted situation, different facets. I think the facets you named are all entirely true. And I'm going to maybe talk about some other facets. They don't reduce the validity of the facets that you've named. They just kind of add to the complexity, I guess, of the range of human experiences. So first of all, I, I totally want to endorse the fundamental duty of the parents to the kid. You inflict consciousness on unsuspecting flesh. You owe it a lot, 100% all in there. I just want to kind of mark some distinctions and some complexities. One is to make a distinction between the behavior of parents while the kids are young during childhood, zero to 18, let's say, okay? And then I just want to distinguish that, whatever happened during that period of time, with, between whatever's happened since then, in particular with regard to the willingness or not of the parents to 
respond to the desires of their kids, to acknowledge fault, to engage repair, to be willing to act differently in certain kinds of ways as a precondition for seeing your grandchildren or having Thanksgiving together. Just want to draw that line there. If we're talking narrowly and strictly about what is okay morally, and this is a judgment call entirely, what is okay for an adult kid to do, an adult child to do with regard to their parents based on what the parents did when during their childhood? Is it okay on your 19th birthday to say, you know, I never want to talk to you again because of X, Y, and Z? What if, you know, when you were a kid, your parent was really pretty neurotic, over-controlling, critical, invasive, kind of borderline-y, you know, in terms of diffuse boundaries in your business a lot, trying to draw you into being your therapist and just kind of drove you crazy a lot as a kid. Well, on your 19th birthday, are you, quote unquote, justified from cutting off contact with that parent and blocking their access, let's say, to their grandchildren, to you, for the rest of their life because of how they behaved when you were a kid? I'm just adding a complication here. Another complication I want to add is the ways in which how parents behave in families is the result of a vast network of causes and conditions. How they were raised themselves, their economic situations, their health, the behavior of their partner, whether they had a partner at all, other things they were dealing with, other siblings sometimes that are in the mix who were special needs in some ways that drew the parents' attention in. I'm just tossing in complexities that affect and highly influence, you know, how a kid is affected. Then also in the unfolding of our childhood, we're really typically highly affected by our peer relationships uh, of various kinds or our relationships with others outside the quote-unquote nuclear family. And yet often we tend to attribute fault to our parents because they're kind of local and clear, when in fact, a lot of other factors were really in the mix as well for ourselves. So I'm just kind of offering this, not in any way, shape, or form to let the parents off the hook for what's genuinely problematic, but just to kind of sketch some other facets uh, in the situation. Yeah, I think that it's natural to, like you were saying, kind of localize responsibility to the parents for a wide variety of things that are going on inside of the family system that the parents themselves might be, to an extent, a prisoner to. Mm. At the same time, sometimes somebody finds distance, whether it's a parent, a child, a sibling, or whatever, because what they need is distance from the family system. Yeah, And the parent essentially becomes collateral damage in that equation. And that's what needs to happen because the family system is unhealthy, the family system is abusive, the family system is problematic, the family system is bad for that person's mental health. And maybe it's not entirely the parent's fault, but I think that it's just the way it is sometimes because the system is unhealthy. And I think that there's a distinction to be drawn here between blame, like who gets the blame, and what we're actually doing over here in this kind of other category. And a lot of the time in estrangement situations, 
And we want to be very careful about talking about like how frequently A or B happens or specific cases or whatever. But I'm just drawing from the few examples that exist among my friend group of situations where things like this have happened that I've sort of interacted with personally. A lot of the time, there actually isn't blame. Sometimes there's a lot of blame. But a lot of the time, there's actually an appreciation for all of the factors you named, the ways in which the circumstances were not an ideal. Wow, the parents really went through these hard things in their own life. You know, they just didn't know better. And yet at the same time, you eventually come to a point of choice. You come to a point of choice of whether or not you want to continue to engage in an unhealthy system for whatever reason. And this is circumstances that we're going to just like make the assumption the system is somewhat unhealthy just for the sake of ease here where you're choosing to engage in an unhealthy system out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of obligation, out of a desire to maintain simplicity, out of a desire to connect with other members of that system who you like for whatever reason, you're choosing to do that. Or you're choosing to find distance from that system. And your parents are going to be the um, the flag carrier for that system, but they're not the whole system. Often the problem is the system, not the individual. And I think that that's just kind of an important thing to highlight here. That's an excellent nuance for us yeah. and really helpful. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things to really take away, it's so complicated. Yeah. And some things are just complicated. For example, when you were young, your mom and I distanced from my parents because my mom in particular would not stop giving us unwanted advice. Mm-hmm. So we decreased our contact we distanced. We didn't break it off. It was painful for her, but we felt it was really necessary. And it was also a case in which we asked repeatedly, you know, for a change of behavior and she didn't really budge. Although there were other times, even before it all happened, where we weren't really able to articulate what was uncomfortable, but we just started distancing in a way I know that was painful for her. And I kind of wish retrospectively I'd been better <laughs> at using my tools and using my words and talking with her about it. So I, I can relate. Mm-hmm. I want to be clear. I can relate to this. The two situations that I think really stand out again and again as types of situations are, are one, like the situation that the questioner brings up, which maybe we could talk about next, where, yeah. you know, you're, you really are trying to get Uncle Bob or Mom Sue to change and they just won't shift. They won't acknowledge the past and they won't change in the present. And you're grappling with that and you're sorting out, what am I entitled to do? What feels right to do? How to deal with this? Even if sometimes, for example, you feel you have the right to reduce that contact even to zero, deep down inside yourself, there's often still a fair amount of unfinished business about it that and grieving and loss and gosh, I wish you were different. And you get a funny feeling in your belly every time you think about it, even though you feel clear and justified in your stance. So that's one category. The other category that I've definitely observed routinely and I've experienced it is you're rolling along. You kind of think everything's basically okay. Maybe you get a funny feeling a little bit, but there's nothing particularly overt. And suddenly this relative of yours, this kid, this parent, this stepmother, this cousin, just cuts you off. Boom. And they they won't talk with you about it. You're not even sure what happened. Or maybe they tell third parties this exaggerated account of what happened that you know is just not factually true. 
what? And you know how to deal with that. So just to name both of those as pretty typical kind of situations, I think, where there's a lot of suffering involved. So that said, maybe we should talk about the question. To return to it, uh, again, difficult relationship with mom. Would like to have her in my life, but I'm struggling to let go of some past things. How do you forgive somebody who doesn't show remorse? That was a line in the question that I really want to focus on. Yeah. Part of what we're talking about when we're talking about the situation that you were describing, Dad, where you know that something is problematic. There is something that somebody else is doing that is causing you harm, causing you bother. You've told them to not do it and they continue to do it for whatever reason. To me, any kind of full reconciliation with somebody else in adulthood requires a complete apology. That's, that is the A number one first step. It requires admitting what happened. It requires being deeply honest about it. It requires apologizing for it. And then it requires very, very critically a commitment to functional change. A lot of the time people apologize, but there's no actual functional change. And what really matters is functional change in the nature of the relationship and the problematic behavior in whatever's creating the problem for you. But there's another kind of forgiveness that we talk about in the book Resilient. It's right behind me if you're watching on video, which is this idea of disentangled forgiveness or what I've kind of taken to calling functional forgiveness, mm. which is a form of forgiveness that you extend on your behalf rather than on the behalf of the other person. It often includes a shrinking of the relationship between you and the other person. Uh, just like you were saying, Dad, you kind of going, look, I understand that right now my mom is causing problems inside of my primary system of relationship because of the way in which she is interacting with that system. Me and my wife are trying to raise this kid. My mom's being a real pain. Okay, we're going to kind of exclude her from that process. So that way you can kind of shave off the sorts of things that cause friction between you and the other person. Maybe you just stop talking about politics with a relative. And every time that they try to engage you about politics, you commit to smiling and nodding and essentially not responding. You know, and of course, situations vary a lot here. And there are situations where I certainly wouldn't be doing that. But okay, if there are little things where I can go, yeah, Uncle Bob, whatever, maybe pruning that out of your relationship makes having any relationship at all functional. So that's the first thing that I would ask. Like, are there things that you could shrink from your relationship with your mom that would enable it to improve in dramatic ways? When I think about the particular question, and it's a common situation, in a sense, we're balancing duty to other, duty to self. So to just kind of walk it through, you could think to yourself in a situation like the questioner brings up or in other type situations, what do I owe this other person? And then you decide for yourself. Maybe you believe, as, as I believe for myself, that in a broad sense, I don't know if it, the right word is duty, but we have a principle of compassion to live by that's unconditional. There could well be compassion for the parent of an adult child, all right, while at the same time feeling entirely all right with separating from that person because it's just so harmful for you or your own family system to be with that person. So I can kind of get that. Also, sometimes what happens is that we're dealing with people who are relatives and we look at them and we realize they're never going to change. They're never going to change. And then based on not so much even our compassion for them or our duty to them, 
What kind of relationship do we want to have with them for all kinds of complicated reasons based on our own priorities and our own agenda? Maybe for the sake of our children who are really young and are not really affected by how neurotic and, I don't know, whatever, (laughs) annoying our parent is, it doesn't really matter because the kid's two, three years old and grandma's really sweet. She brings presents. It's not a big deal. So maybe we say to ourselves, I'm just going to kind of ignore all these things I know about my mother, the grandmother of my children, and I'm going to enable an ongoing kind of contact and I'm going to keep an eye on as long as it's good for my kids. So I'm going to make that choice, which is along the lines of what you're saying, kind of shrinking the relationship, but focusing in a particular area. But the point I'm trying to underline here is the way into this is your own priorities, your own purposes, how you're setting it up in ways that are good toward your ends. You're setting up the relationship with your own parent as a means to ends that you personally care about, including in my example here, uh, the benefits for, for your own children, for example. To raise another dimension of this, in what I'll think of as marginal situations, situations where there isn't overt abuse by one party or another. We're in that kind of more funky gray zone where the parent has been very imperfect, maybe even problematic, but for whatever reason you want to perpetuate a relationship with them or you want to be kind of on the side of the relationship. I think that clear communication is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. Being very clear and very open about the ways in which the problematic behavior is problematic the ways in which that behavior is problematic for you specifically and what needs to change in order for you to maintain a relationship with this person. Mm. Those conversations are almost universally unfun and are (laughs) often enormously challenging. In my personal experience, that is a conversation that happens frequently in these normal range situations. It's actually very obvious to all parties Mm -hmm. what the problematic behavior is and the ways in which it needs to change for the relationship to continue. But I think that if we're approaching this from a moral dimension of what's your responsibility, you move so cleanly into full morality for whatever choices you make after the warning if you give warnings. Yeah. There's no question anymore about whether or not you are kind of entitled to do what you say you're going to do because both parties have made their choice. A clear communication has been delivered. The other party has chosen not to receive it. And well, now you're at choice about it. And it can be an extremely painful, extremely uncomfortable choice, but you've done your duty. So I think that that's kind of a dimension to name here that we haven't really spoken about uh, directly to this point. I think it's a great point. And yeah. I've known clinically many, many situations where the adult child says to their parent, this or that, you know, I I don't like X. I would really want you to start doing Y. And their parent just brushes them off. They can't believe it. They don't want to admit it. They don't take it seriously. And it's very frustrating. And finally, sometimes you need to do things like not come home for Christmas or not invite them to the wedding for the point to be really communicated. And then maybe sometimes after that shot across the bow, there is a big wake-up call. There's a big wake-up call that can sometimes happen that can really lead to a very beautiful kind of reconciliation. I'm not saying it happens in the majority of cases in my own experience, but it can possibly happen on the one hand. Yeah. On the other hand, boy, I just want to name situations that I've been very aware of where 
as a parent of an now adult kid in their 20s or 30s, you can just know that that kid who's an adult now has a bucket of grievances toward you or a variety of ways that they close their heart to you based on all kinds of things. And now as a, as a parent of someone who's an adult, ah, oh, it just pains you a lot to feel that they're unreachable and they have no interest in repair. And yeah, it's the right of that adult kid to do whatever they do. They have the right, all right? And maybe to some extent, they're quote unquote justified in that. But one thing that I've been just very aware of is the impact on parents of behavior of their adult children. And kind of to summarize and simplify a lot of stuff, I think that as an aging parent of an adult kid, your adult kids matter more to you than you matter to them. And you just have to live with that fact. That's really just kind of natural. They matter to you a lot. And when you're that adult child of an aging parent, you know, one option and one I tend to encourage is to just take into account the ways in which you really do matter to that aging parent, typically, not always maybe, but typically, and to take that into account, you know, in your dealings with them. Yeah, I think that this kind of segues naturally into the second common question that we receive about this topic. This is probably the most common one that we get, actually. Uh, and it goes something like this. I'm a parent and my child has removed themselves from interactions with me. I know that I made mistakes when they were younger. I feel really bad about it and I've done my best to make up for it. But my kid doesn't want to see me anymore. What can I do? So to me, there are already some key components in this question that might not be the case in every situation. There's the admission of an error. There have been attempts at an apology, at least according to the person asking the question. The degree of mistake that's alluded to in the question is actually quite relevant here. Were you the good enough parent? Were you doing the best you could in a tough situation? Aware of the familial structures that were creating problems around you? Aware of your own history that, yes, made your behavior imperfect, but at least made you aware of it? Were you looking out for your child and making the most of it? Or were you physically abusing them, which, by the way, includes corporal punishment, with some regularity? Were you drunk every weekend? Were you, you know what I mean? Like there are different kinds of mistake or error that a parent can make that can have radically different impacts on the long-term relationship between parent and child. At the same time, getting bogged down in arguments about what happened is almost never useful. And particularly, I want to highlight something really important here. If somebody says that something was traumatic for them, believe them. Take them at their word. If that includes a painful admission on your part, if that includes a painful acceptance on your part, well, that's kind of a part of it. If it requires that you see the world through a different lens than you are currently seeing it, well, that can be a part of it. Like we cannot educate for another person what constitutes traumatic. And in my very limited experience with these kinds of situations, people often get bogged down in that as opposed to simply moving into responsibility taking and, okay, what do I need to do now? I want to acknowledge the ways in which 
This feels like a different episode than our usual in the carefulness that we're both using to walk through this. And I guess I just want to say for the record, I don't think you and I have unfinished business between us that we're tiptoeing around. I think no, we're yeah. walking carefully and delicately because <laughs> <laughs> it's no, a minefield no in general. There are communications being made <laughs> okay. here. To, yeah, to be obvious here. Yeah, yeah we're this good. is not, we're this good. Is not a, a, a Rick and me thing. <laughs> <laughs> we're really good. That said, gosh, yeah. I, I hear you, Forrest. There's so much truth to what you say on the one hand. On the other hand, huh, facts really do matter. You know, for example, if a parent so I, like an aging parent, you know, the, let's say, denies the fact that they were three sheets to the wind most at most dinner times and definitely in the bag by, you know, 10 o'clock at night, drunk. If they're just not willing to cop to that fact, which was observed by multiple people factually, well, that's a real issue because facts really matter, right? It's also true sometimes that where the wheels really tend to come off in families is in the teen years. And having been a teenager myself, having raised two teenagers, and also having worked with a lot of families, to be frank, neurologically, the teen brain, there's this disconnect between the maturation of its emotional systems, the intensity of emotion and desire in the adolescent brain gets kind of a turbocharge while the executive functions of the brain are still, you know, trucking along at roughly a fifth grade level, you know, and then it takes a while for those, you know, executive systems to come online and sort of match the intensity now of the emotional engine that's been, that's, that's gone from a beat up old Toyota Corolla to a roaring Ferrari. And there's situations where that 13 year old kid can interpret events a certain way or have a really intense reaction to something, boom, and then just swerve, make a sharp left turn from that parent, which then sets the course of their relationship for the next 30 years. And maybe there were things that that 13-year-old didn't understand about the situation that the parent was exercising authority in or why the parent had that intense reaction, you know, when the school called. Yeah, so at the end of the question, there's that very poignant line, my kid doesn't want to see me anymore. And there could be a lot of different reasons that a kid doesn't want to see a parent anymore. We can't really parse all of the different situations. We can't parse all of the blame in terms of who's responsible for what. Maybe some of those situations include a teenager just for whatever reason gets sucked into the river of a problematic life path that ends with them removing themselves from their extended family. It could also include a situation where, frankly, the parent was profoundly problematic in a variety of different ways, doesn't fully recognize the extent to which they were profoundly problematic, and now their kid has distanced themselves from them. Regardless of the situation, that parent is also a human with human emotions. And it's painful to have your kid not want to see you anymore. And then there's that question at the end, what can I do? And I think that what can I do has kind of two aspects to it. The first aspect is how could somebody go about attempting to reconnect with somebody who is estranged from them? And the second question, which I think is, personally, I think is kind of the more important one, 
and is certainly the simpler one for us to talk about, is what can that person do inside their own mind to deal with the grief and loss associated with that estrangement? And this really applies on both sides of it, right? This applies to estranged parents, this applies to estranged children, estranged siblings, whatever else. That grief and loss is frequently present. It's a really good setup. And to name one more complication on the way into talking about how a person could practice with it themselves, there's also often the role of third parties. For example, in a divorce scenario in which there are two parents, they have a child, they separate, they divorce. And in the process of that divorce, for various reasons, that child becomes closer to one parent than another parent. Mm -hmm. And maybe in the process of that, sometimes the parent they got close to does little things to turbocharge the estrangement of the child from the other parent. And part of what's in the mix is you feel mistreated by, even betrayed by other adults, including potentially your former spouse, you know, in the larger system. And that can kind of get in the mix as well. So I'm just kind of naming that. I think a place to start is the good old fashioned, be with the experience. You got to start by bearing the unbearable as our guest, Joanne Cacciatore, wonderful, wonderful guest, titles her book, Bearing the Unbearable, where uh, she focuses on the loss of children and, and other kinds of deep, deep loss. But more broadly here, I'm talking about dealing with, in the traditional metaphor, the first art of life. It hurts. It hurts. You're cut off. You want to connect. You feel helpless. Um, You feel shamed in some ways. may well feel there's an injustice here. Whatever it might be, these reactions are arising in you. They're painful. They're suffering. So I think it's important to start there, holding the, you know, how it feels in spacious awareness, bringing compassion to yourself, bringing tenderness to yourself, recognizing the common humanity of your situation. It's easy to feel that you're uniquely bad. You must be uniquely horrible for your son or daughter to cut off contact with you. When in fact, this is very normal. It's very common. You may well have been bad in some ways. That said, it's also common humanity here. So I think that's the first place to start, just in terms of just feeling it, being with it, and being okay about it. So there are two sides to this, right? There's, were you the cutoff-er or were you the cutoff-e? Yeah. And there's often pain associated with both experiences. Totally. And I think that it's really important to emphasize that, right? Because it's, it's very natural for us to attach to the pain experienced by somebody who was cut off. But just as frequently, there is pain in the person doing the cutting off, regardless of how problematic your parent or child was. Yeah, There is still often, because we are deeply social animals with millions of years of evolutionary history that goes into us wanting to just love and be deeply committed to this primary attachment figure, yeah. you still have this part of you where you're like, you know, crap, I still love this person. Yeah, I hate them, but I still love them. Yeah. What do you do with that? Like that is an incredibly challenging experience for somebody to be going through. Huge. So this dynamic exists on both sides of it, right? For sure. Another way into the the kind of acceptance part of this maybe a little bit, as you're saying, being with it, the human experience, common humanity, is acceptance that painful things happen in life. Mm. And I don't mean to kind of demean it by just bringing it down to that level, but it's true. Painful things happen in life. Sometimes we cause those painful things, sometimes we don't. Either way, 
they're painful and we need to move into an acceptance of what is. Because if we're just constantly expending our energy raging against the river of what happened, we're never going to be able to move on. We're never going to be able to come to peace inside of ourselves. So I think that for some people, there is an absolute place for acceptance of the current state of affairs that they have not fully accepted yet. Maybe that means accepting that, you're, that your kid's never going to want to talk to you again. I don't mean to be kind of brisk about it, but maybe that, maybe that is what it is. And it's only by entering the acceptance phase that we can move in to any other psychologically useful phase. But it starts with acceptance. You know, that's a very acceptance and commitment therapy act kind of approach. But still, I just think it's deeply true for most of the experiences that we have. Yeah. And one of the things we're accepting on in either type of situation is a block to the natural flow of love. Mm, mm -hmm. And including a situation where, let's say, you're the one who is distancing from your parent. Part of the pain of that sometimes is a wish to have a healthy mutual relationship in which there can be a flow of your natural love. And it's poignant and sad that you can't do that with that person because of the way they keep on acting. They keep driving you crazy, understandably. Mm -hmm. Flip the other way, if you're the older parent of an adult child, there too, you want to have a natural flow of love and relatedness. And ugh, it's it can't go anywhere, right? It has nowhere to go. There's, there's mm -hmm. a primary kind of suffering in that. So for sure, that's true. I could add a few things, if you like, from what I've seen about, let's say, if you're in the position where someone has distanced from you more than you would like, and they're, let's say, unwilling to repair. Let's say that's the case. What are some of the things you can do? I do think it's helpful as long as you're not chasing minutiae and ruminating and rehashing to really take a hard searing look at all that you did on your side of the street that was problematic that your adult child is reacting to. And to find that middle place where you're not denying or minimizing your own conduct, including not just what your intent was, but the impact on your child, unwitting even, even the impact of well-intended behaviors, they still had impact on the child. So to really do, as they say, I think in AA, a fearless and searching inventory for your own sake to come to peace with it. So you're not minimizing or denying on the one side. On the other hand, you're not overstating it. You're not just assuming that you must have been horrible. You're really piercing into what was it you did and come to a feeling of responsibility about it. I think that that's hard work, but really helpful. And that's definitely been true for me in certain situations. Try to, try to face that while also recognizing your helplessness, the limits of your influence, to realize there's so much that's just out of your control and that the reactions of the other person may well be out of proportion to what you did, at least as you would understand it. It's a lot of factors in the swirl that you don't have control over alongside the things that you really were responsible for. So that kind of reflection, which can often take months, if not years, to work through. You might find yourself working through it at a deeper and deeper level over time. But that kind of real open-hearted, fearless and searching inventory, I find is actually a real factor in liberation, in becoming freed up around what happened. 
your heart may still be heavy. There still may be that first dart. Every time you think about it or when the holidays roll around or the birthday rolls around of that person you wish it would be appropriate to send a card to, but it's not, or your birthday rolls around and you know you're not going to get a card or an email or a good wish. Okay, maybe your heart's still heavy about that, but in general, because you've gone through, through this dynamic of taking responsibility and also seeing the bigger picture, you don't feel burdened by it. You're not ruminating about it. You're not so weighed by down by it all as you go through your days. Yeah, that's great. And if I could offer a, a third thing that I've seen work and has worked for me too, if you're in a situation in which someone has separated from you and you wish they hadn't, is to look for other real relationships in your life today that can fill some of that hole. Mm. So you may be in a situation where you just say to yourself today, my cousin, my sister, my son has cut off from me. I wish they hadn't. I've taken responsibility. I've really tried to repair, but it's out of my hands at this point. Where else can I find family? Where else can I find my true brother, my true sister? Where else can I find an adult child, someone that I can give to? Where else can I find young kids who are my grandchildren of construction, not my grandchildren of blood? And it's not to somehow lie about the loss over here, on the one hand, is to be pragmatic about looking for ways to forge relationships that give you that family feeling that is available to you here and now going forward in your life. Yeah, no, I think that could be a great way to get some of the resources that mm, you might not yeah. be getting right now from your family of origin. And it's also pertinent to people who are trying to find distance, not so much to find a surrogate parent, but to look for the kinds of relationships that they can build in their life through which they might be getting those familial resources in actually a more psychologically healthy way than the way that they would be doing it through their actual family of origin, which is something that comes up very frequently. There are two parts of this that we've talked about a little bit, but we haven't talked about in detail. We're getting kind of toward the end of our conversation here, so I don't want to spend too much time with either of them. But the first question is when you're a person who's in a position where you're beginning to think, wow, I might need to find some separation from my parent, child, friend, brother, whatever it might be. And then the second circumstance is somebody has separated from me. I really want to reconcile with them. What can I do to make that go as well as possible, understanding that they, of course, still have all the agency in terms of deciding whether or not we have distance ultimately. And those two circumstances track very neatly to the first question we got, how do I choose whether or not to keep my mother in my life? And the second question we got, my kid is taking all the space from me. Oh my God, what can I do? Mm. And so I would like to spend just a little bit of time talking about those two different circumstances. How does that sound to you, Dad? Sounds great. Good distinction. Great. Okay. So for the first one, maybe again, because I've kind of taken like the distancer role throughout this, uh, throughout this conversation, I might as well stick with it. I, I think that the first question is a really important one, which is how does it feel to be around this person? Mm. How does it feel on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you leave every interaction feeling worse than you started in it? Yeah. Even if you love them. 
And that is a huge indicator right off the top. The second big question is how willing are they to take responsibility for what they did, particularly, again, avoiding a lot of the complexities around, oh, I thought they did this, but they really did that. Their intention was this, but the consequence were that. No, 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 we cut through it. What are you pretty darn sure actually happened? What were its real consequences on you? And are they willing to take responsibility for those real consequences? And if they're not, again, that's a really big indicator. Maybe finally attached to this, and this is something that I kind of wish we had spent even more time talking about, is the person that you're distancing yourself from willing to make sacrifices inside of the broader family system to keep you around? And I actually think that this is a hugely important part of the whole thing. Often, as we were saying right at the beginning, the parents are the figureheads for an unhealthy family system. It's not just the parents' fault, it's the cousin's fault and the uncle's fault and the aunt's fault and the second stepmother's fault, these very chaotic family systems. Is the parent willing to go, you know what, little Timmy, I love you and my relationship with you more than I love and care about my relationship with these other people. And therefore, I want to have an individual relationship with you. And you don't have to come to Christmas anymore. But I would really love it if the day after Christmas, I was able to go over to your condo and we could just hang out together. Maybe that's accessible for that person in a way in which that big family system is not accessible because it is fundamentally unhealthy. And if the person isn't willing to check these three boxes, basically, make basic interactions pleasant, take full reasonable responsibility, and then change behavior around what happened, and do what they can to improve the broader family structure, or at least make it so you don't have to interact with it, if they're willing to do those things, I think that you've got a good basis for continuing some kind of relationship with them. If they're not, wow, it makes it really hard. That's all deeply wise. And I want to name another complication, which has to do a lot with culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I come out of um, Western culture, American culture. Great point, yeah. Late 20th century, early 21st century. I've had interactions with people, for example, when you were young uh, in school settings. These were parents of, of kids that you knew. And the parents were born in India and they came to America some time ago. And and I, I found myself asking them, so what's it like for you here? And their comment was, it's terrible. There's no sense of family. Mm. There's very little relationship. People don't connect with each other. It's like you're all just strangers, ants passing in space. I was really taken aback. I thought, well, wait, we live in a fairly, you know, middle class, upper middle class suburban environment. It's pretty sweet. People are nice. Like, wow, this is horrible. Mm. And yet for them, it truly was. Mm -hmm. For them, it truly, truly was. So you and I are talking here about kind of a waiting on family and obligations and generational obligations that are very culturally situated. And I just kind of want to name that we're talking about it in a hyper-individualistic kind of Western culture way of saying it that's actually anomalous over the course of human history. You think mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. certainly anomalous in hunter-gatherer bands. So just kind of naming that part. Yeah, and and some of that is born from changing obligations over time to different groups. Like yeah. if we're talking about this in the 18th century, the, the family was literally all that you had, often all yeah. that you had in terms of your place of work, where you derived your food from. Yeah. Uh, we think about ranch environments, 
from not that long ago, like yeah. the situation that my grandfather, your father was born into. Yeah. Uh, you don't really have the choice of taking a lot of separation from a problematic family structure. You're just kind of there and the nearest family is 20 miles away. Yeah. We live in a very different situation these days. Yeah. So in terms of deciding whether you're justified or what to do, let's say, in terms of reducing contact, distancing, even cutting off, your own aging parent, maybe. I thought the way you walked through that for us was extremely useful. Really, really Great. useful. Yeah, thank you. One thing I would just like to flag was I bring in the other side of it. On the one hand, if the aging parent were in my office, I would say, do whatever you need to do, short of sticking an ice pick in your ear to keep your daughter happy, to keep your son happy, to, because they have the power, they matter much more to you than you matter to them at this point. Do whatever you need to do, unless it just seems incredibly egregious. Absolutely. I've given that advice multiple times. And by the way, I'm going to try to keep that advice myself. You know, if you bring a little <laughs> list to me, <laughs> including on behalf, sometimes what happens is, you know, on behalf of, you know, your partner, let's say. Sure. Uh, or your kids or something like that. Okay, on the one hand. On the other hand, I've also known situations where I would ask my client, so what bugs you about your mom? Like, what's the big deal? Like, what really bugs you? Or why are you, why have you cut her off for the last couple of years? And they'll say, well, honestly, she has this habit of chewing with her mouth open in restaurants and it's embarrassing and it drives me crazy. And I'm like, really? Now I'm a therapist. I'm supposed to stay neutral, basically, and not be, you know, take sides. Like, oh, <laughs> what bothers you so much? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are rational reasons for making choices. Or something kind of along those lines. And it just, you know, without getting into what's justified or unjustified, what's right or wrong, just pure pragmatic interest to realize, you know, if you cut off contact in a family system with an aging parent, that can have a lifetime of consequences. It can be consequential when that parent dies. It can have impacts on broader systems. You know, it's consequential. So just really take that into account when you're ready to make these big steps. Yeah, these are big decisions. And I, I think that most of the people who are listening to this are not making them trivially. So maybe from the other side of it then, coming from the perspective of the person who is being distanced from, are there things that they can do, you think, to engage this process as you know, well, consciously, skillfully as possible in terms of attempting to reconcile or repair or achieve forgiveness from the other person? Take maximum personal responsibility yourself. Be careful yourself on poo-pooing the complaints of the kids. In your view, it might seem like such a small thing that they don't want to do Christmas in a particular way, or they're less religious maybe than you are, or they you know, really want you to not interact with their spouse or their parent, their parents-in-law from their spouse's side um, in a particular kind of way. And internally, you think to yourself, really? Is that that big a deal? Well, guess what? For them, it really is that big a deal. And you know they matter more to you than you matter to them. So it's in your best interest to walk on those eggshells 
if you think they're just eggshells and keep the peace. I would say that. I would say also, if someone has cut off contact from you, I think it's really helpful to stay out of justifying yourself, which is, I think, Forrest, been very much your own counsel here, and to really try to understand. Uh, in the Steve, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I definitely recommend, one of them is seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Mm. Really try to understand what in the world is going on and cop to it to the maximum possible extent to really yeah. bend over backwards. And third, if you do make agreements, keep the agreements, keep the darn agreement. If you agree not to drink at the holidays, if someone puts the world's best champagne in front of you, don't touch it. You know, keep the agreement. If the parents never want you to use certain kind of words or to give a gendered kind of toy to the kids, don't do it. Do exactly what they want you to do. If you make that agreement, absolutely keep it. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that sometimes it's helpful to write a letter or maybe try to send some kind of olive branch or communication through a third party, someone who's an intermediary. If you are going to put something in writing, be really thoughtful about what's in writing potentially being used against you or taken out of context. The last thing I'll just say is to realize that in this life, so many weird things can happen. It's a long, long, long life. And to just accept the fact that in this life, certain dishes are going to come your way. When I rewind this whole interaction, which is an unusual conversation. Yeah. You know, tonally even. Mm -hmm. There's kind of this background of mourning. Yeah, totally. In the vibe. There's a kind of grieving here. And also an aggrievedness. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Grief and grievance. Yeah, and I, I think it's part of what makes this whole territory so challenging to talk about. Yeah. There's such a range of situations. There's a, such a range of yeah. kinds of grievance and levels of grievance. Sometimes people are separated from who totally deserve it. Sometimes people are separated from who may or may not deserve it. Like maybe they just got dealt a bad hand and it's not really their fault and they did the best they could, but they really did do something that legitimately hurt somebody else. On the other hand, maybe the person who's acquiring separation is just being profoundly self-centered and not caring about the emotions and situations and experiences of other people. Just as the parent has overwhelming power over the young child, man, as people age, particularly as they really age, you start moving into health situations, you start moving into low mobility. The child has an enormous amount of power over the parent. Also, generally, in terms of dictating when people see each other. Because yeah. most right. of the time, as you were saying, you want to see them more than they want to see you. And and I mean, I'm I'm grateful that that's like not our dynamic. I really love seeing you guys. Unfortunately, I live close enough that that's an easy thing for me to do, but that is often the case. And when we have these big power imbalances, and maybe this is just kind of my closing thought here, our responsibilities change. Yeah. And maybe there's a moment where there is a lot of water under that bridge. And there were a lot of legitimately bad things that happened inside of that relationship. But somebody just has kind of a moment of grace where they go, you know what? I want to 
put a bow on this relationship in a way that allows for a certain degree of healing and forgiveness to take place. And I think that that's really beautiful and really legitimate when it does happen. And at the same time, I think, man, sometimes you got to know when situations are unhealthy for you. Mm-hmm. And you got to see it clearly. You got to be like, look, I might deeply love this person, but every time I leave that house, I feel worse about myself than when I entered it. And that's enormously consequential. That is enormously consequential for a person's life. And to me, our greatest responsibility is to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It is to looking out for our own health and happiness and well-being and the health and happiness of well-being of the people we spend the most time around. Yeah. Sometimes that's your parents. Sometimes it's not. And I think a lot of this is just about clear seeing in terms of what you feel is the honorable and moral action to take. It's poignant in part because as a parent, most parents are not sociopathic abusers of their children. Yeah, for sure. And so there you are as a parent, you're dealing with a whole bunch of complexities yourself and you've got this kid, nobody trained you to become a parent. There you are. The village it takes to raise a child's a ghost town. So it's really on you. And this kid is this is someone you'd make enormous emotional investments in. Enormous. And then they grow up and they grow apart from you and they walk away. And you're still invested in them. But you know, they're not invested in you. It's super poignant. There's a you could say almost a tragic view that inherently parenting is a tragic undertaking in some senses. You Mm. really deeply invest in your kids and then you're incredibly vulnerable to what they decide to do about that ever after, especially these days in in which the traditional family system, the extended family or environments where people usually lived and died within a hundred miles of their birthplace. So they maintained ongoing relationships typically. Their family now, relationships are matters of choice not of circumstance. And routinely there's situations where the kid is a thousand miles away or more from the parent. And what do you do then? Yeah. I I have found this to be a really helpful thing. For both the person who is stepping back, let's say from an older parent, and also let's say for the older parent who's had a child distance in ways that are painful, for both of them, I have found that there is definitely a healing and a kind of inner freedom that's available when you find your way to still wishing that person well. You may choose to never see them again if you're on that side of the equation. On the other hand, you may have a real sorrow about being separated, but in either case, you can continue to wish them well. And there's something about that, finding that heartfelt feeling of good wishes for them, even if you accept the fact that you know you may never talk with them for the rest of their life and yours, you can still wish them well. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that I heard said about estrangement issues is that often the most challenging type of grief to interact with is the grief for those who are still living because there is this feeling of the phantom presence mm. around the table the person you've distanced yourself from, the person who's distanced themselves from you. And you feel that presence in a different kind of way when you know that they're still somewhere out there and yet they are beyond reaching for whatever reason, either because you chose that for yourself because you think that that's what's truly healthy 
or because they don't want to interact with you anymore. And man, that is a very challenging kind of grief to reconcile because it is one that doesn't have a clean completion attached to it. Yeah. I think that we could spend probably another six hours talking about this and yeah. going through all of the nuances and forms and styles and interactions and all of that. It is such a deep and rich topic. It's been a very interesting conversation today, I think, at least for both of us, uh, probably also navigating the natural dynamic between a parent and a child having this conversation. Thankfully, one that does not have any of these overtones attached to it, for which I am enormously grateful. Yeah. Uh, but just nonetheless, those differences in perspective. So I hope that if you uh, made your way through the entire conversation today, you found it useful. Today, we focused on talking about estrangement situations. We began today's episode by talking about the different kinds of estrangement that families might be experiencing. In all estrangement situations, there is a distancer and a distance e. And in the circumstances that we mostly focused on, we talked about a child distancer and a parental distance e. In other words, the child is looking for more distance from the parent. Of course, that's not always the case. There are plenty of examples of parents distancing themselves appropriately or not from their children. People choose to distance themselves from members of their family for a wide variety of reasons. And it's very challenging for us to cover all of the different circumstances and conditions that might come up. And throughout the conversation, we tried to stay away from situations where it was very clear one way or the other what a person should do, or at the very least, what a person is entitled to do morally. If we're talking about circumstances of abuse, in my view, you can do whatever you want morally. If you choose to distance yourself from your parent, wow, more power to you. They were abusive. They were deeply problematic. Then there are situations, for one reason or another, where a kid makes a selfish decision, where they head down a problematic path in life as a teenager, things really go sideways for them, the parents try to intervene, the kid resists that intervention, and then bam, they're 19 years old, they're out of there, they never interact with the parents again. Even though the parents were perfectly good enough, were not excessively controlling, and were just trying to do right by the child. The dynamic inside of estrangement situations is often complicated by and attached to the power dynamic that exists between parents and children. When children are young, parents have enormous power. My personal view is that there's probably no greater moral obligation than the obligation that a parent has to a young child. You influence that child in so many ways that affect the course of their life. And critically, that child does not make the choice to be born to those parents or to be born into that broader family system. They are entirely innocent. And yet, they are the inheritors of that often damaged family structure. And as they age, they might see more clearly the ways in which that structure is damaged, the ways in which that by interacting with that structure, their life is cheapened. And then you get to a choice. Do you stay inside of the structure out of a sense of moral obligation to your family of origin, some sense of the nuclear family and the responsibility that kids have to their parents and so on? Or do you look out for yourself and distance yourself? Do you understand that the system is unhealthy and that you will, over time, be made more unhealthy by it? 
But then over time, the dynamic shifts and the child frequently finds themselves with more power over the parent than the parent has over them. And in those situations, again, because you have more power, my personal view is that we tend to begin to have more responsibility as well. To try to navigate these situations in more granular ways, we focused on two kinds of case studies, two questions from listeners. One from the perspective of a child trying to find some distance from a parent and going through the whole process of figuring out what to do, how much distance to have, and whether or not they should fully separate themselves. Then the second question was from a parent whose child had separated themselves from them. They would tried to make amends. They would tried to reach out to the child and apologize for what had been done. And yet there was nothing to do. The child would not accept their apology and continued the separation. There was a lot of nuance inside of this conversation, but there were a few points that we made over and over again. The first was that ultimately it's your choice whether to forgive somebody else. You can't make someone forgive you. But sometimes you recognize that you can't come to a full forgiveness for someone else, but you want to have a functional relationship with them for whatever reason. Maybe it's because you want to stay in contact with your siblings. Maybe you really like your Uncle Ted. Maybe you just kind of take a pragmatic view and you go, look, I want to have an inheritance one day. Whatever your reason for it, you want to have a functional relationship with this other person. And that's where what we like to call disentangled forgiveness comes in. Disentangled forgiveness often includes the other person not making a full apology. You're just trying to get to a place where you can almost forgive them on your behalf rather than on their behalf. It's a place where you can let things go and you can begin to hold the relationship inside of yourself in a way that allows you to have some separation from it. You don't feel as entangled in it. You're not worried about whether or not they'll one day apologize for what they did. You're taking it where it is and you're going, you know what? I still want to be functional with this other human. Inside of yourself, that might involve a real clarity that what they did was profoundly messed up and you would never do it to somebody else. It might involve never having a certain kind of conversation or a certain kind of interaction or being around them in a certain kind of circumstance ever again. And you might be perfectly clear about that inside of yourself. Another thing that we emphasize is the importance of responsibility taking. If you're in a position where somebody distanced themselves from you, take to whatever extent possible full and complete responsibility for what you did. And then, critically, it's not so much about the apology, it's about the way in which the behavior then changes. In many kinds of estrangement situations, what happens is there is this long cycle of one person saying to another, I need you to change in these ways, or saying to them, here are the ways in which you hurt me. I need you to take responsibility for that, and then I need you to change in these ways. And the person gives a tearful apology. They promise that it'll be different in the future, and then the future comes around, and nothing actually changes. One of the things that Rick mentioned is that sometimes parents take kind of an unfair amount of stick from their children for the problems inside of the larger family system. 
I then responded to this by emphasizing that often what's happening when a child is distancing themselves from a parent is that they're distancing themselves from the family system as a whole. If the parent is a part of a broader family system that the child finds painful to be a part of, challenging to be around, traumatic to be involved in, well, then you have a choice to make. Are you going to continue to be a part of the broader family system, or are you going to choose to connect to your relationship with your child? We then talked for a little while about how to make the often extremely painful choice to separate yourself from elements of your family. And I emphasized three key points. The first is to really pay attention to how it feels to be around people. Maybe you found some distance in small ways and you find that these painful patterns you used to have, these patterns of harmful or negative behavior, are really improving. And then you go back into interaction with your family system and man, all of the negative behaviors just come right back to you. If you find that every time you go home for the holidays, you feel worse at the end of it than you started, well, that's an indicator that maybe you shouldn't be going home for the holidays anymore. Second, really pay attention to how willing the other person is to repair, how willing they are to accept responsibility for what they did, and how willing they are to change in meaningful ways. Then finally, pay attention to the broader family system and that power structure that has emerged. If the person you're considering separating from has a greater allegiance to maintaining the structure in the family system that's problematic than they do to you and your health and well-being, that's a real red flag right there. Rick also spoke for a while very poignantly about coming to terms with grief and loss moving into acceptance, appreciating the reality of what is. And he closed with this really beautiful point, that often these situations are made just a little bit easier if you can still find a place in your heart where you have compassion for the other person. Maybe you don't love them anymore. Maybe you don't even like them. Maybe you're totally clear that what they did was abusive and deeply problematic. But nonetheless, alongside that, if you can hold just a little bit of compassion for them, it often makes the separation that you find from them much easier. This was, to be transparent, a really challenging conversation, not just because I'm a child and Rick is my dad, but because it is such a nuanced and fraught one with so many different little complexities that can emerge into so many of the different little situations you might run into here. We really can't speak to every possible circumstance that can emerge, but we did our best to cover what we could, and I hope that you found it useful. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, and hey, you could tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week.